Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Pleasant afternoon to everybody. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, depending on where you are in the world. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with the wonderful water wizard, Mr. You all know his name, right? Any guesses who it is? I know who it is, Mr. Chris Davy. Chris, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, Rob, I'm good. I'm fine, Rob. Great out here, out in Southern California, uh, getting cloudy. We're going to have a storm this weekend. When Chris Austin comes on, she can tell us about her upcoming storm as well. Looks like it's going to be, you know, several inches of uh, rain, but it's a warm storm, so it won't bring it won't bring snow anyway. All the snow predictions here are seventy five, eight thousand feet and above. Uh, well, here we're going to see nice weather. It was seventy four degrees today and sunny. It's supposed to be that way over the weekend, and uh, it's really nice out here. Cold in the mornings, but uh, warms up real quick, and. Uh, Everything's good. You had a good week? Everything going good uh, in uh, California? Southern California? Yeah. yeah, terrific, actually. You know, so, uh, uh, so we may, you know, we may, there may be a surprise for our listeners here coming up in early February. You and I might be doing a show at the same place at the same time in the same room. That would be excellent. I would love that. So we'll see Mr. how that Radio. goes. Mr. Radio Partner. <laughs> uh-huh. So, but uh, we've been doing it for a while and uh, it's, it works well sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the only part that I think our listeners might know is when we're not sitting next to each other and we're both doing it remote, it's a little hard to see and know what we're doing. We try to link up with video and uh, and do that, but we're also remote from the studio, so that makes it, uh, uh, and, with, and with Chris Austin, there's four of us, all of us are remote, and uh, trying trying to hook up and make sure everything runs right is a, is a tough job, but, but we I got a great engineer named Eric, and... Uh, He's probably the best we've not probably he is the best we've ever had, and I appreciate all the all the work that he does. So anyway, Eric, I know you're listening. He's got to monitor the show. Thanks a lot. We do appreciate you. And so let's hear from Miss Chris Austin in the central part of California. How are you doing, Chris? Hey, I'm doing great. Actually, I'm in Northern California now. Um, up oh. here in Chico. That's up north of Sac- Sacramento. So oh, yeah. is that where they have the ladies' clothes store, Chico's? Actually, we do have a Chico's here. Yes, we do. There is one here. Interesting. Very close to my house, too. So, oh. um, But, yeah, we're up here. We've had some rainstorms coming through a little bit, a couple, I think, uh, about three now. Um, not. They're all kind of tend to be warm storms, so they're not really accumulating a lot of snow up in the mountains but uh, but it is raining we get a, a getting a fair amount of rain so oh. this is um kind of where the groundwater recharge project become uh, important and you know because uh, the rain is falling below all the reservoirs that are designed oh. to catch the snow melt so being able to take this water now and be uh, routing it into groundwater basins for recharge is, is important. So um, we continue to work to ramp up our efforts at groundwater recharge across the state. So. Oh, that needs it. Well, I, from there's a study you were talking about uh, on your on your blog about uh, 
uh, atmospheric river storms and what they call a super sequence, and we're probably going to be looking at some of those coming up? Yeah, they they kind of think maybe that we might be having uh, the conditions might be setting up for that. Uh, they they think that we're going to see more of them uh, as time goes by. Uh, you know, uh, kind of similar to what we saw when uh, we had the failure up at uh, uh, or Lake Oroville on the spillway. So you know, it's. Um, we're hoping, <laughs> but it's also, you know, being prepared to take lots of rain, uh, lots of really wet storms. It's, um, you know, it, it's it's a challenging thing. But well, absolutely. But on the on the opposite of that, uh, you were you had written some stuff about Cal- some California farms have, uh, you know, dried up a river. <laughs> nobody, nobody stopped them. What's that about? Well, yeah, well, and and one thing that's kind of, you know, not until you, it's a, we're talking about an article in the New York Times, and so one of the things that they don't tell you till you're a little bit into the story is that um, the all that, all the water that was being diverted was likely legally, um, legal diversions, that they had a water right to take the water. The problem is that there wasn't enough flow in the water and I mean, there was enough flow in the river for all those water diversions, so it just they just took the river down to you know as low as it could go, and you know no one even noticed. You know, I'm sure the people that live around the river noticed, but uh, the state water board sure didn't notice. Uh, and it it was like four months they say where the there was a stream gauge that showed like no. Uh, no water flowing past it. So what it really shows is that, you know, we really have a hard time managing and knowing what's going on in all these rivers. Uh, We don't have real-time monitoring except in uh, some of the largest areas. There's, you know, we we have real-time monitoring in the Delta and place where you can get instruments, but we have so many creeks and streams and rivers in California that we it, it would be a gargantuan task to go to real-time monitoring on every river in the state. There's just too much of that. Um, oh, but when you have a system where, you know, everybody can take water, when you dry up a river, that's very catastrophic for the fish and for that, you know, for that... Uh, environment there and you you know so you let it dry for four months of summer the hottest months and then you start putting water down and uh, that river is not going to be quite the same uh you know it's not like uh all the creatures that were living in that water you know then come back magically after the water reappears you know so it's very devastating and it just kind of points out how difficult it is for us to manage our water and to know what's going on. Um, you know, it's almost an impossible task, at least at this point it is. Didn't anybody hear the gurgling? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that uh, they do have a stream gauge there. I mean, did, did nobody look, I mean, you could you can go online and look at the data for the stream gauge. It's not you know, 
It's just not uh, clicked into the state water board website. And uh, the state water board can't go and look at all the stream gauges in, in other places, but nobody was looking at this stream gauge at all. I mean, four months? That's a long time. Yeah. So, you know. I know Chris uh, Davies got some questions. Chris, go ahead. No, I was yeah, you know, I was more interested in looking at uh, uh you know, a couple of the uh political issues that happened in California this this week, Chris. I know I got a ton of feed from um particularly from uh, you know, my Department of Water Resources and uh, I don't know, several of them about uh, all the all the major advances that were uh that were made in in groundwater sustainability they called it a milestone they another article called it um uh finally you know california's got sustainable uh groundwater uh rules and laws that are coming into play what's your take (laughs) well um you know we the the milestone that dwr is talking about is that they have they finished their evaluations now of all the groundwater sustainability plans that were submitted. The very, you know, the critically overdrafted basins went, I don't know, I can't remember, 2020, and then two years later, the remainder of the basins uh, uh, submitted theirs. So the Department of Water Resources has now uh, completed evaluations on all of those submitted plans. So we're now... They didn't all pass, but they they completed the evaluations. And so the next time, uh, I believe it's 2025, will be the next time that groundwater basins will be submitting their plans. So I, I imagine the staff at the Department of Water Resources is uh, feeling very happy for have, you know, accomplished uh, all those evaluations. Um, they have, they found uh, seven more Basins, they decided that their plans were incomplete, so that means they are sent back to the GSAs uh, with corrections, you know, uh, things they need to correct, and they have six months to correct those, and then they, if they're, you know, and resubmit them, and if uh, DWR uh, finds that they still haven't addressed the issues, then they can uh, send that those groundwater basins over to the state water board for intervention, and you know the state water board already has six plans that or six basins that are potentially going to go on probation with the first hearing coming up in April of this year, um, and then the others following. So it's a busy state water board as it gets ready to uh, begin the the groundwater intervention process, and they might have some more joining them. Uh, <laughs> but the, but it's you know sure there are some problems with the groundwater plans and and those need to be addressed. But uh, the one thing to take away from that is that uh, you know every. Every GSA and every groundwater basin that was subject to Sigma submitted plans. Nobody, no basin said, you know what, we don't care. <laughs> Come after us if you want. We're not going to do anything. No, everybody submitted plans. So, they, you know, that's uh, 
100% compliant. Uh, and I think, if I recall, uh, one plan was, only one plan was submitted late, and that was because they were missing a coordination agreement or something like that that they needed in their plan. So, you know, out of, what, 125 groundwater basins subject to SIGMA, um, everybody complied. And that's a pretty amazing thing. I think it is too, Chris. I mean, you know, you got to go look back 10 years because um, if my if my date is correct, you, you can tell me if it's not, Chris, but I think it was 2014 when uh, SIGMA came into effect, 2014 when it was done. And now... Um, Boy, you know, almost almost 98%, I guess, is, uh, I think is the number that I read, of all the uh, state's groundwater use is actively now being managed under Sigma. So, you know, you can't, you can't say they've been sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They've, uh, that's established quite a lot. No, they definitely uh, work to try and comply. So, well, you know, now we have some errors to fix. But, uh, you know, that should not uh, dim the uh, enormity of the fact that everybody did comply and no one said, you know, don't care, do what you're going to do, you know, we ain't going to do it. So uh, now, now, you know, the rubber hits the road, everybody has to implement these plans. And so that's what they're working on. Um, But it, it is quite a milestone. Yeah. Are the farmers or some farmers still angry about Sigma? Oh yeah. Um, It's very, it's been very difficult in some basins. Um, You know, it's, it's just going to be difficult. The, the hard work is, you know, been going on and is still going on. I mean, these basins have to cut back pumping, you know, when they first came out with these groundwater plans, You know, a lot of these agencies were very optimistic about water that they could get for recharge. And so, you know, they had lots of plans where we don't have to reduce our our pumping because we're going to do all this groundwater recharge. But the reality is that there just isn't a lot of water floating around. It's not like, you know, we had extra water sloshing around that we weren't doing anything with. So, you know... um, so the reality is that uh, it means that there's going to be less pumping. And if there's less groundwater pumping, well, that means, you know, some of your people in your district are going to have to cut back. And that's really difficult. Um, these are people's lives. This is how they make their money. You know, so it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing. It's not a trivial thing. You know, it is difficult, and we'll see, but I do believe it's a necessary thing, and I kind of believe that this is why the state went with this local approach, because in this instance, they're making the hard decisions fall into the groundwater sustainability agencies to figure out how to divvy up their limited supply the other option would have been that they could have tried to mandate something from Sacramento, but then wouldn't that be just, you know, a common complaint? Sacramento is, you know, here telling us what to do, right? And it can be very pop- unpopular decisions. So, 
they put the hand, the, put the decisions in the hands of the, you know, the agencies. And I kind of think it was the right way to go. But it, it's very hard for those folks, no doubt. Yeah. Very difficult yeah. conversation to have. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was talking to somebody today about about this California judge rules that the state can't issue bonds to finance a Delta Tunnel project. <laughs> yeah. how, how, how's that going to really affect this project? Well, I'm sure that they'll find a way around it somewhere. They just can't use this particular way. Um, this is this is very odd process that they have to go through to you know almost like DWR sues itself over these bonds so they get a court ruling on whether they can do it or not um, and the court has ruled that uh, they don't think that they have authority under this particular legislative act to which they say they have authority now I'm sure they'll likely appeal that but if not I'm sure they'll find a way to work around it, um, but it's another hurdle that uh, they have to go through. Uh, and just to you know, keep in mind that it's a very unpopular project, and it's probably the way it's going to go on uh, most aspects of this project. There's, there was a, a lady, and I don't remember her name, at a meeting I, I was at with uh, Metropolitan Water District, and they were one of the people were presenting or discussing that the water agency should pay for it, and, and the way they'll they'll recoup their money is they'll obviously uh, go back to the the rate rate payers and, and uh, ask for more money on their bills. And I don't know how that's going to play out because people say, hey, we already paid taxes to the state and everything to get these things done, and now you come back and say you need more money, so now you want more money from the individual homeowners and mm -hmm. commercial users. Well, know. you know, you know, we unfortunately, infrastructure is always needing to be maintained, improved. Um, yes. You know, I I don't think anyone should ever really sit there and think that they don't that they don't have to pay anymore for their infrastructure. Um, it's going to be an ongoing thing, uh, and as the as the water becomes less available you know the phrase that that we use sometimes is that we're not really out of water we're just out of cheap water and yes. you know that's kind of where we're we're moving towards is that we have we're going to have to start looking at some more of these more expensive options like um direct potable reuse we were talking about that you know being able to take sewage and and turn that into drinking water of uh, you know fresh enough to put directly into a drinking water system, and I know that's kind of a you kind of go ew you know I mean I get it I get it I kind of do that too, but the reality is you're not going to see that in unless you live in a large area in Southern California you know they can do that because it's very 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 expensive water. I mean, uh, you know, even just to recycle water to get it good enough for irrigation is uh, is a, a expensive process. So you don't see, you're not going to see direct potable reuse going on in like where I live in Chico, where we have 95,000 people here. You know, it just can't, we don't have enough of it and we don't have enough people to spread the cost. But yeah, you will see this in the Bay Area 
in in uh, in Southern California, more expensive, you know, ways to get water. But you know, we need to. So that's why we need to be careful about the water that we use, and you know, be prepared to pay more. Unfortunately. No, no, I I agree. Uh, one of the stakeholders in that meeting, I just want to go back and, and give you some little more clarity to it. So when they said, you know, we pay taxes, why why do we have to pay, you know, have another fee added on top? I guess it's like I guess the way I look at it, it's like going to the airport and buying or buy you buy an airline ticket and say you get to one of the inexpensive airlines and they have a fantastic price. I mean, it's like two thirds less than everybody else if you buy it, but then you got to pay. To carry a bag on, yeah. Then you got to pay to get a drink of water or a cook. I mean, but that—that's the thing. I, for me, I rather just pay pay the bill, the one-time bill, because when you get to the airport, then you then you got to start paying extra. Here, here's another credit card that you got to put out. Here's another expense report you got to create for that. I mean, just just put it all in one package, and and that's the fee. It's a flat fee, mm-hmm. and that's what it is. Well, and, and, yeah, and but what, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. In, in the world of municipal finance, in the world of taxes, you know, you, I don't think they can lump stuff together. It needs to be separate, you know, so that people see what they're being charged for. And, you know, yeah. Prop 218, which requires, uh, like, uh, voters to approve any new charges, uh, like, to their water bill, is it's been proven, you know, very difficult, <laughs> to do um i mean it would be great if they could lump it all and if you know and actually i would say that you know if you were a um uh investor owned utility then you i think you do just kind of get one bill and i agree i agree but if you're a if you're a um publicly owned water utility then i think you have to spell things out a little bit more yeah, I know, you know, for instance, you go get your car oil change, okay, at a dealer. There's the price for the, there's a price for that, for that, you know, for the oil. They, they separate it. Here's the oil cost. Here's the labor cost. And then they have a, uh, California has a rule uh, that they have to have uh, a rag. What do you call it? Uh, you know, an oil rag that they use to wipe off or cleaning things. And that, that's added into the, the thing. I understand that all, but it's, but you just pay it one time. You don't, they don't say, here it is, and you fit the credit card, and then a week later, oh, you, 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 this is another charge for this and another charge for that. It's just the way it's presented, I guess, is the way people looked at that during that meeting. So, But you're right. You're right. I absolutely, everything you said, I totally agree with. Yeah. So, hey, uh, so Chris, I got one more question for you, because I know we're getting down to the bottom of the, bottom of the uh, half hour here. But Chris, okay. another article in, the, in Maven's Notebook, Today that I read, I mean, just uh, real, really got engrossed in, in reading about it. It's the article by Vicki Boyd in Ag Alert about um, the savings that we are we are seeing here two two years into a three year study for desert lettuce growers, right? And starting to use shallow buried drip and and uh, other crop management tools. Just um, it just seems fascinating. In fact, something our our next guest might uh, might have a, a comment about as well, but. Um, I don't know if you if you uh, read that article, Chris, but uh, just looking at the experiment they've been doing two two years into a three year study and the savings that they are uh, seeing, just looking at expanding that to the entire, especially Imperial Valley 
lettuce growers. I mean, just absolutely, you know, hundreds and thousands of acre feet can be saved. I don't. Did you read it, Chris? Um, I didn't. Know? I didn't read a lot of it. Um, I, I have to confess, but. You know, drip irrigation is that's something kind of radically new for the Imperial Valley because they have yeah. so much leaching, you know, that they that they need to do, uh, you know, because well, the Colorado River water itself that comes in is very salty. Uh, but, you know, um, it's great that, you know, there's a lot of ability to save water there. Uh, it, that's, a, you know, it's great that they're looking into that. I just thought it was a great article, Chris, and it, it, it was good. You know, I always i i i go to the uh, fish and wildlife articles and the ag <laughs> articles. You know me. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, All right. There's a lot. There's a lot happening with that too. I mean, the the water commission, uh, you know, was uh, was talking about a statewide strategy for protecting uh, fish and wildlife and, and and communities. So that's another topic that we can do next week. But. Uh, going on this week it's a real busy week for water in california i can tell you that so, every indeed. week is busy <laughs> yeah that's that's true well we're going to go to our commercial break chris thank you very much for our listeners go to mavensnotebook.com become a subscriber it's the best way to get uh, really first class information about really what's happening this lady chris knows everything that's happening i don't know she must i don't know if you buy your stuff at a spy store and leave things at people's offices to get all the secrets <laughs> about what you do, but you sure print the stuff before everybody else gets it, so we appreciate that. And you can also become a, a sponsor of that, and I, it's a world of knowledge that uh, you really can't get from any other source. So, Chris, thank you very much, and and uh, we're going to have you back in a couple, well, you'll be back next week and every week, but uh, there's, there's a special guest we're bringing on that you know about, and uh, you'll be doing some projects with him, so... Uh, we're going to let you share some of the time with him uh, on your show. He's going to have the second segment, but we'll let you introduce him because uh, he's one of your guys. And very proud to know him anyway. So thanks, Chris. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week. You have a good weekend. You too. Good night, everybody. Have a great week, Chris. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with our uh, special guest. So stick around and uh, keep your radios turned on and turn it up loud, and uh, we'll be proud. We'll be back in a minute. NBC News on KCAA Loma Linda, celebrating our 25th anniversary. Sponsored by Teamsters Local 1932. Protecting the future of working families, Teamsters1932.org. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. 
Aquatrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623-594-8689. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulation. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch, or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi-enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. This is KCAA. Second half of the Water Zone Radio Show program. I'm your host, Chris Davey, along with the uh, ever-present and all-knowing Rob Starr. Welcome back again, everybody. We got a, another guest coming on the show today. He's been on the show before. Um, his name is Mike Davison, Doctor Mike Davison, as a matter of fact. He's been on the show representing Moliere before, but today we've got him on for another reason. We're going to talk to Mike a little bit about. Um, Climate smart irrigation. We're going to talk about a trip he recently made back to Israel um, where he'll discuss some uh, drip irrigation technology that's going on back there. there some references to uh, climate change and the challenges that they're facing, food and water scarcity, and some uh, other subjects. So we're in for a, an interesting, great second half. Uh, Mike Davidson, if you're at the mic there, buddy, welcome, welcome back to the Water Zone. Always my pleasure, Chris. Great to see you, CIA. Great to talk to you here. It was terrific, uh, buddy, and I and I appreciate that too. Um, listen, so why don't you kind of uh, you know give us a summary of um, of what you're going to chat about this afternoon with us? Because uh, again, you know, number a number of the guests on the you know on the primer we did were mentioning Moliere, Moliere, but we're here for a different reason today, right? We are, but. Timing is everything, uh, and is listening to your previous segment. Greetings to you from the Imperial Valley. That's where I am today, Calipatria, Brawley, and actually, the commercial plug. We're actually installing a lot of Moliere systems specifically for the purpose of being able to mobilize salt below the root level without the chemicals, and uh, timing, I guess, is everything. It's been, yeah. you know, and all the talk about Colorado River water. There's a big summit coming up. We're going to be there. Um, we want to get into Yuma and see if we can just stop the leaching because, again, nanobubbles are able, because they're negative charge, to mobilize the salt. The best example I can give you, I won't name names, but we have a major grower in the uh, valley up by where you are, and um, they were using massive loads of gypsum and couldn't get the salt below about 23, 24 inches. 
the only change they made was pulling in a Moliere system, and now we're moving the salt down to 48, 49 inches. He's done with gypsum, and our clients out here in the Imperial Valley are just installing, and we're just quoting systems actually we're going to be delivering in a couple of weeks, and hopefully we'll, I don't know if eliminate all the leaching going on down here into the tiles, but that's one of our goals. Wow, so 24 down to 48 inches is, <laughs> that's the that's double. I mean, that's twice yeah. as much. With, well, that's true. Know, it's, it, it's no, no absolutely. other. Go, Mike. Your comment. No other implementation. Yeah, it was yeah. one change. In, yeah. Well, that's terrific. So, How long are you yeah, down there for, the, the remainder of the week? Uh, no, I got to head back. I have... Uh, Timing again is everything. Have some guests from the Renew from Israel visiting us, so I'm going home to cook dinner. <laughs> awesome. Well, we Rob and I appreciate very much you coming on uh, the Water Zone again to talk about uh, climate smart irrigation. And I know I know for you know a, a lot about what's going on and what you've been doing um, re- recently, and you know some of the important and revolutionary things that. Uh, that you've been doing for for us here and seeing uh, back in, uh, in in Israel. So why don't we start there with some of the uh, drip irrigation and some of the experiences that you had? Well, uh, really, the perp- one of the major purposes of my reaching out to you and Rob, um, as you know, Israel suffered a huge traumatic blow on October seventh, and it yep. just got me thinking. You know, the relationship between the United States. Uh, and Israel is very, very warm and very strong. And in particular, I think the listeners, especially on the ag side, also on the turf side, but I think particularly on the ag side, I think it developed really strong professional and personal relationships. You know, with uh, it goes both ways. I know my I'm Israeli and American, so I get the benefit of both sides. But I know that all when I go to Israel. And I work for Israeli companies. I've worked for a lot of Israeli companies that they just so much appreciate the the generosity of spirit that, you know, American farmers, American dealers, other American manufacturers that are, you know, symbiotic. It's just been, a, I just think we need to take a moment and realize how precious and how strong this relationship is. Um, so one of my purposes here is, you know, this is, People are friends, and friends help friends. And um, I was in Israel just a few weeks ago, um, after the war started, after October 7th, just to volunteer. And obviously, I just want to volunteer in the area where I feel capable. And I just have to tell you that the opportunities for volunteering in the ag sector in Israel, whether it's picking, planting, gifting, bailing, everything is done. And... Um, they need us, and uh, so I actually spend most of my time picking tomatoes, picking lettuce. I can tell you from firsthand experience that if you, someone offers you a position to pick lettuce, choose romaine, do not choose iceberg. That's <laughs> the biggest maybe takeaway you should get. <laughs> but, um, I, I, uh, Mike, let me. I saw the pictures on on the on the uh, Climate Smart Irrigation website, by the way, and uh, and the photos you took and 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 read the blurb, the stories and stuff. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, it's got a, it must have been an absolutely fantastic experience for you. Can you share more? Sure. Um, 
well, you know, on a personal level, I lost a lot of friends and family members uh, during yeah. October 7th. Um, and a lot of my friends are still held hostage. So it was not easy. Um, I have to tell you, it was easier to be there than to be here because it gets frustrated. You know, what can I really do? So it was a combination. Um, first of all, it's very well organized. If you go to Israel, and, and, and I'll direct people, if they go onto my website, you fill out a form, climate party irrigation, and I will direct you immediately on, on how you get hooked up. Um, and they're very inexpensive places to stay. Uh, so in general, it's all done through WhatsApp. And uh, there's a meeting place for people who want to help out in agriculture. There's one in the north, one in the south. My preference is that people first look at the ones in the south. They're the more needy at this point. And we meet at a uh, at an intersection, you know, one of these intersections. You know, there's a gas station, a couple of restaurants, a huge parking lot. Everyone meets there. That's like the meeting uh, point for the whole southern part of Israel. And you meet there, and there's a guy directing, are you here to volunteer? Yes, for agriculture. Okay. There's the pin drop. Follow this caravan. And you follow the caravan, and you drive and drive and drive and drive until you get either to Kibbutz or Moshev. So people probably have heard of Kibbutz, Moshevim are similar, but uh, organized around families instead of individuals, smaller parcels. So many of the farms in the southern part of Israel are exactly that, they're Moshevim. And you finally get to where you're going, and I have to tell you, mostly they're Israelis, course helping out most of them do not have agricultural experience but they're working maybe not as efficiently as those of us who work there every day but they're out there and um they're proud to help so you get to a moshav and today for example a couple of weeks ago they say all right so here we are we're in this greenhouse and we have to finish the greenhouse so we're picking and here's how it's done and you take this wagon here's the baskets you fill them up and if it's red, you pick it. If it's green, you don't. Thank you very much. And you learn how to do it. And what we usually do is we work for an hour, maybe two hours, and then the owner stops everybody, brings over, brings everybody closer together, coffee, of course, and then gives you a really detailed explanation of where you are so you know where you are, if it's a Moshav or books, when it was built, who settled it, the whole history. And then the hard part is, he tells you, well, what happened here, because most of the Moshe Kibbutzim that we're volunteering at are fitting distance to Gaza. They're right on the border. So they tell you what happened on that horrific day. Um, there's hard stuff to listen to. And then you finish your day. You know, we meet at the meeting place at 6.30 in the morning, and you finish your day, yeah. 33 o'clock, something like that. Get a lunch break. Got to bring your own lunch. Um, and then you go back and you do it again the next day. But what we do, and what I encourage people, is obviously everything is voluntary, but we would go back to, I came from Kibbutz, so I go back to my Kibbutz in the center of the country where we have a lot of friends, and we organize, and we march for the release of hostages, um, we, we demonstrate and we march, and that's what we do in the late afternoon until the early, until the late night, the early morning, 
and um, then we come back and we do it again the next day. So it's pretty well organized, and if people prefer working in the medical field, they prefer working in IT, they prefer working in schools, you know, every single socioeconomic sector in the country really needs help. But again, I'm speaking from my heart, and my heart is in agriculture, and um, the appreciation of the Israelis um, when you come is overwhelming. I can promise yeah. two things. One, you'll work really hard, and secondly, you will take this with you in your heart forever. Yeah. Well, I can I can and tell our listeners that at Sorry, Mike, I was just going to say I could tell our listeners, and at the end of the show, um, let's make sure we give you a couple of minutes and you can talk about how they can find out about this stuff by going to the your, your website. But I would encourage the listeners to go yeah. to the website and listen and watch, rather, the YouTube video, the Volunteers Needed video that uh, that you did, because that was yeah. that it was quite good, pretty, pretty moving. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but now, I don't know, a lot of things went on. on climate party irrigation now. Is the first thing should be it takes you to a place that says volunteering in Israel, and you just fill out your name, your email, and I think right. a phone number, and maybe a line of what you want to do, and it goes directly to my phone. Uh, and then I immediately send, you know, information if you let me know when you're there. Uh, everything, everything is, is sent immediately. It's really, and, and there's, and I have to tell you, there's no seasonality to this. As you know, in agriculture, Especially in an arid, semi-arid zone, there, there's no season. There's no stoppage. If it pours rain, you know, even if it's raining lightly at this time of year, so much of the of the uh, crops are indoor in you know greenhouses, hothouses, and the work doesn't stop. The work is always going. Well, yeah. Oh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, well, well, again, welcome to the show, Michael, and we appreciate you coming on. And uh, I, I know you did that out of your heart. I also know you're a pretty brave guy for doing it, and, and uh, I'm sure they appreciate it. Let me let me get back. I know in you know in in the age of climate change and challenges of food and water security, do you think the U.S. and Israel are working together enough to address these global problems? Oh, absolutely. Um, two things, real quickly. Um, one is, is this is, we used to say, you know, this is the first green revolution, second green revolution. This seems to be a constant now, especially since AI broke into the field. Um, you know, the amount of innovation that are coming out now, and I know a lot of companies want to come there. The other thing about going there, if you can spend a little more time, all these companies that I can pick you up really would like to get your input on some of these innovations, you know, there's AI to identify and manage pests to reduce post-harvest loss, identify and manage weeds, more quickly develop a new breed of slow-release fertilizers. You know, the progress in handheld drone technologies for monitoring is really, really blossomed. But in terms of the big picture, Rob and Chris, you know, the relationship, first of all, between the United States and Israel is really a partnership. In, in 2021, U.S. Israel were $12.8 billion, and that probably doesn't surprise a lot of people, but what may surprise you is that U.S. imports from Israel were 50% more than that at $18.7 billion. So this is a very strong, mutually uh, beneficial relationship. 
there's a couple of groups. The Negev is the southern part of Israel, and there's what we call the Negev Forum, and that includes, very interestingly enough, Bahrain, Egypt, Israel, Morocco, UAE, and the United States, working together to provide the best chance to address, really, as you were mentioning, some of the world's most pressing issues in science and technology, and especially under that, they have the Food, Security, and Water Technology Group, and they're promoting projects that harness existing methods of technology and new approaches for improving food security and water technology. The United States Department of State, U.S. Agency for International Development, and the Government of Israel just signed an MOU to address energy poverty and expand access to energy in sub-Saharan Africa, 300 megawatts of power generation. And there's always this joint research and exchange program. The United States and Israel are, are always coordinating what we call the scientific and cultural exchanges through the Binational Science Foundation, the Binational Industrial Research and Development Foundation, Binational Agricultural Research and Development Fund, United States Israel Education Foundation. The United States and Israel have a joint economic development group, and they meet every single year. And there's five or six other things I just jotted down, but the United States and Israel, and maybe this sounds overblown, I think that partnership is the best partnership for, and I'll just say this potentially, nothing is guaranteed, and it's a big ask, but for solving what I call planetary sustainability. The, the science from both countries, the drive, and the level of cooperation and partnership gives us hope, and I, yep. and I believe that in my soul. Yeah, I can believe it as well. It's great that you mentioned that the, you know, the U.S.-Israeli relationship is, it's gone back years. I mean, it, it's historical, right? A lot of the technology today that we see used in ag in the United States originated from Israel. So since you were just there, did you, did you see anything, or is there anything you can tell our listeners that we should be on the lookout for? you know, that's coming up, kind of, you know, a couple of innovations that we might want to keep our eye out for? Sure. Um, I think I mentioned this uh, on a previous one, but this is really starting to take off, and it's a broad subject. You alluded it to uh, in your previous segment as well. We always first look when we manage water. We optimally want to manage it. We always look to demand management. We also want to make sure that we optimize water use efficiency, but sometimes, even though we're optimizing it, we still don't have enough water. We don't have every single answer, so we need to address supply as well. And, again, one of the things that I hope we eventually will do here in greater, uh, in greater amount is treated wastewater. Everyone talks around it, but the innovation in Israel to put in a wastewater treatment plant that is off-grid that takes only solar power, that's it, and um, and is, is sized for, you know, several thousand households, and I think can be put at a farm, and all the runoff can be, you can put anything into it, it's made to clean up sanitation, obviously, but it doesn't mean that we can't take runoff, we treat it, and then just turn it back around and irrigate with it again. This is a system that requires, again, no electricity at all. All you need to do is, is collect 
water it in like a pool, and you just plop this thing on down on top of it. You hit the button, and it goes. So we can do this for a few thousand families. We can do it for 20,000 families. They have all different sizes and shapes. That's one thing I think we hope will be coming. 40% of the food that we grow is waste globally um, because of post-harvest loss. So there's a couple of companies. One is really caught my attention because what they do um, is they take, you know, when when companies um, get carbon credits, you know, when they say they're sequestering carbon and they're going to get tax credits for it, where does that carbon go? What happens to it? This was news to me. Mostly it is stored in a liquid fashion. They have these big vats, these big silos. They're actually storing liquid carbon. They can't find a use for it. They inject it into the earth, which is fine. But this company says, we will take that off your hands. We will take that liquid carbon. We will pressurize it, kind of like a soda stream, like when you get your soda water. And then it cools instantly. Carbon has incredible properties of instant cooling. So they're putting this cartridge in the field and then taking, like, just a tube into each box that you pick, each picking box. And when you pick cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, whatever it is, it will cool those peppers, those tomatoes. It will reduce the temperature from, say, 100 degrees Fahrenheit to just above freezing. Now, you can make it any temperature you want instantly. And the critical point of post-harvest loss mitigation is to cool the vegetables as soon as they're picked. And this technology uses carbon to do that. Now, it gets better because, obviously, you have to release the pressure within that canister. So they release that pressure. The carbon, excess carbon, floats out like in in a gas, but it's in the field. So what happens? The plants take it in for photosynthesis. So you're using the carbon functionally, not only to cool, but to increase photosynthesis for the plant and sequestering it and taking it out of the system instead of injecting it into the earth. So the company is called Natural Offset Farming. I'm happy to give them a plug. They're good guys. Uh, the last one, if you have time, real quick, there's a new company. Um, the name escapes me right now, but it's in-tree. We have a lot of in-tree sensors these days. This is AI. They have an in, he has an in-tree sensor that identifies any movement in the tree. I mean, if the tree, I, well, what's the purpose? The purpose is identifying pests. So if there's any pest in the tree that moves, and all pests move, they know where the movement is, they track the movement, can tell you what pest it is, and can tell you what the population of the pest is. So that's something that's pretty exciting. Uh, and then there's a lot of AI and computer learning and weed um, identification. The big thing there um, is the speed with which new generations of herbicides can be created. Because in the old way of doing it, it would take decades. I mean, look at the last time there was a, a Roundup. If you don't like Roundup, that's fine. But, you know, what was the last great herbicide invented? And we have trouble. We scratch our heads because it takes years and years of laboratory work to do it. Well, now, because of AI and computer learning, they can do it in a couple of months. So now there's all of these generations identifying um, 
you know, different, uh, different um, uh, protein in the plant, and if you right. can identify that protein, you can identify the herb and the herbicide. So those are just a few things going on. No, I was just saying, it's totally amazing. But we got about one minute left, but just real, real quick, you know, we read about and see on TV really the horrific images of the Gaza war. And, you know, we wonder what's really yeah. going on in Israel. And, and does the American agricultural community, who have been big beneficiary of Israel's technology, do they have a role to play here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a whole other segment. I'm happy to come back. I, I don't get in. I do not want to persuade anybody taking one side or the other. Tragedy is everywhere, and there's a lot of people right. to blame. Yeah. But um, there, there are insights what's going on and I'm happy in another time to share you know from a personal point of view what I see um, and, I'll, and I'll just tell you I, I you know, who who's objective here but I do I again think I'm one of the few Israelis I have a guest at the Palestinian Water Authority in Ramallah in Palestine so I worked on developing a model for improving agriculture production in the West Bank which was two years ago so the Palestinian community and I are very very close and I I'll just let you know I got a, a memo back from uh, uh, Seth Siegel, one of our mutual friends, and he's going to be joining us in a couple of weeks. He's going to try to coordinate a time for him to come on. And uh, we're going to have both of you on, uh, on the whole uh, whole show. So, hey, Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Okay. We really appreciate your insight. Uh, you tell us a lot of things we need to hear. So, thank you very much, and thank you for what you do. All right. And Chris and I always want to tell our listening audience, please help keep our planet blue. And the reason to do that is because if you like green, you got to have the blue. So thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week with a great guest. You have a wonderful weekend and stay cool. News on KCAA Loma Linda, celebrating our 25th anniversary. Sponsored by Teamsters Local 1932, protecting the future of working families, teamsters1932.org.